0: Welcome back to the channel. My name is Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about what is in a real estate contract. In our last video, we talked about things to consider up until the point where you sign on the dotted line to purchase a home. In this video, we're going to take it from the real estate contract all the way through closing and talk about the components of a real estate contract and what to expect on your journey between signing that contract and closing on the home. If you enjoy the video today, remember to hit that like button. If you want to know more about the law, subscribe to the channel. If you have something to say, comment below. And as always, I appreciate it if you share me on social media. And remember, I am a lawyer, but I am not your lawyer. If you need advice specific to your legal situation, you should lawyer up with an attorney in your area. Now, let's talk about the basics of a real estate contract. Essentially, the absolute minimum you need to have a valid real estate contract is the three P's. You have to identify the parties. That is both the buyer and the seller. You have to identify the property, and that is the subject matter of the real estate contract. And you have to identify the purchase price. If you don't have those three things nailed down, you don't have a contract. And here's an example. If uh, you and I agree to purchase my house um, and I say, I'm selling it for $500,000 and you say, well, it's not worth more than $100,000. We don't have a contract, right? We have identified the seller, me, you, the buyer. We've identified the property, my house, but we don't have an agreement as to the purchase price. So if one of those basic components isn't agreed upon, you don't have a real estate contract. From that point, if you have identified the parties, you have identified the property, and you have identified the price, then you have to memorialize that in a signed written agreement. The uh, statute of frauds is a statute or a, a common law in all 50 states that requires that a real estate contract be in writing, which means there's no such thing as an oral contract to purchase real estate. And the reason this is, is because uh, somebody could come along and say, oh yeah, old Farmer Brown, he said I could buy his farm for 500 bucks after he passed away. And he's passed away, so I get it for 500 bucks. And the response is, well, wait a minute, that didn't sound right. Do you have anything in writing? It's like, no, 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 it was just an oral agreement. And he's dead now, so there's no way to disprove it. And that's exactly why courts require this to be memorialized in writing. Because something as substantial as the sale of real estate, uh, we don't want to rely on somebody's oral recollection of what that agreement might have been. So you need the property identified, the parties identified, the price identified, that reduced to writing and then signed by all of the parties. If somebody doesn't sign it, they're not bound by it and it is not a valid contract. Now, those are the absolute minimums required for a valid real estate contract. But as most of you know, the contracts that people sign these days are much more complicated. In fact, most realtors will have detailed forms that you fill out when you're purchasing a piece of real estate. In this video today, we're going to go through what each of those paragraphs talk about. Now, we've already talked about the first paragraph that's going to identify the parties, it's going to identify the property, and it should do it by street address and the legal description, and then it's going to identify the price. Generally, the next paragraph will talk about what else is included in the sale. Now, you know you get the bricks and mortar and the yard and the real estate, but when you get inside the house, what are the particulars that go with the home? And this is the law of fixtures, which essentially is Anything that is affixed to the home goes with the home. Now, this sounds like common sense, but it's not always that easy. Uh, The easiest example is to say that the curtain rod that is screwed in or nailed down or affixed to the home stays with the home in the sale. But the curtain itself can be taken off the rod that goes. So in this paragraph, when we're talking about fixtures, it goes through all the various items of the house that could either stay or could go. Now, a buyer and seller can agree to whatever they want, but it needs to be specified in the agreement. And again, I said it sounds like common sense, but it's not always common sense. You've got a dishwasher. Well, that's screwed down. That stays with the home. But what about the refrigerator? You can unplug that and carry it out. That is not a fixture because it's not affixed to the real estate. So things like uh, washers and dryers and refrigerators, they're going to go with the seller when they leave, unless you have an agreement to nail those down otherwise. So if you've got a situation where there's a killer sound system in the basement and or there is a water treatment system or things that can be removed, uh, you need to have a specific agreement between the parties as to whether those things stay or whether those things can be removed by the seller when they move out. The next paragraph usually talks about how the purchase price will be paid. Now, generally, there will be a small down payment made whenever the contract is signed by the buyer. This is called earnest money. Now, 25 years ago, a lot of times, this was a substantial amount of money, sometimes up to 20% of the value of the house. And this was to compensate the seller uh, for the inconvenience of having the home pulled off the market while they went from the signing of the contract through closing. Today, there really aren't or you don't see a lot of large Uh, earnest money payments. Usually, it's a token amount of $500, $1,000, sometimes a little bit more than that, but generally, you don't see 20% getting put down as earnest money anymore. So generally, this paragraph will talk about the earnest money that's been put down and that the balance will be paid at closing. And that's when everybody gets back together at the end and the full purchase price is paid in exchange for a deed and keys or possession to the property. Which brings us to the next paragraph in most of these agreements, and that is closing, where you, the buyer and the seller, determine the time and the date and the location where closing will occur. And this is a date, usually at least 30 days, sometimes 45 or 60 or even longer that everybody gets back together and you exchange the full purchase price in exchange for a warranty deed to the property and the keys and or possession to the property. The next paragraph in a lot of real estate contracts deals with the sale contingencies, and these are things that must occur between the signing of the contract and closing for the contract to remain valid and enforceable. The biggest of these usually is a financing contingency, and that's the buyer saying, listen, I agree to buy this house, but only if I can get a loan from a bank. I don't have $200,000 in cash to give you to buy your home. This sale is contingent upon me being able to get appropriate financing. And in that paragraph, you can spell out the type of financing, whether it's fixed, or variable rate. Uh, You can even get as specific as the amount of interest rate that is acceptable for you as the buyer. You can talk about the type of loan. Maybe it's a VA loan if you're a veteran or an FHA loan if you qualify. The financing contingency paragraph is where you deal with all of the details of the buyer's financing to purchase the home. Another contingency is often an appraisal contingency that the home must appraise out for at least the value of the contract price or the value that buyer and seller agreed to sell the house for. And that's generally part of the requirements of the bank. Uh, They want to make sure that the collateral that they're lending money for is at least worth uh, what you guys have agreed that it's worth. And the importance of these contingencies is if they are not met, it gives the buyer an out or a way to get out of the contract. I have had clients come into my office saying, I signed this $300,000 contract to buy this house. We forgot to put in a financing contingency. And in that event, the inability to get financing from a bank doesn't give you an out you're still supposed to close under the contract, even though it's not a possibility because you don't have $300,000 laying around. Uh, If you don't close, you are in breach of the agreement. So a financing contingency, if you need financing, is crucially important to put into these contracts. Another paragraph in all of these agreements deals with the title. And the seller is supposed to transfer you marketable title, which is essentially good title. And that is, guaranteeing you that there aren't any type of liens against the home. At closing, one of the things that is most often done is that when the buyer puts the uh, purchase price into the closing, the seller will pay off any liens or pay off any loans they have against that house so that in closing, they can transfer the property to the buyer uh, without any liens against it. In this paragraph, the seller also agrees to transfer the property by warranty deed. And essentially what that says is that if somebody else comes along later and challenges title, I am giving you a warranty as to the title. I will agree to warrant and defend that title as the seller and I'm representing to you that it's good title. Now, the opposite of that is a quitclaim deed. And that's when you transfer property to somebody else and you're like, hey buddy, you're on your own. This is as is, I'm not guaranteeing title. And uh, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit, right? In most transactions where you're exchanging money for title, you'll definitely want a warranty deed as opposed to a quick claim deed. Another paragraph will deal with inspections. And there can be a lot of these that happen between the time when you sign the contract and when you get to closing. And this is at the option of the buyer. They can do a home inspection hire a home inspector to come in and do a formal examination of the major functional components of the home. An inspector will look at the roof, they'll look at the foundation, we'll look at the HVAC heating and cooling system, we'll look at the plumbing, the electric, and make sure that all of the components of the home are functioning they will generate a written report as to all of the problems with the home, and the buyer can then take this back to the seller and potentially negotiate the repair of these items or maybe a deduction in the purchase price for problems that the inspector found with the home. This will also detail any environmental inspections, whether there will be a termite inspection or other pest inspection, whether there'll be an inspection for radon, that's popular these days, and mold inspections. People will often have an independent agency come in and test for mold. This is also the paragraph that deals with boundary inspections, and that's generally done with a survey, where a survey company will come out and mark the boundaries. Uh, It's often good to know, especially with large pieces of real estate, where the exact boundary line is. Often it is clear within a neighborhood uh, where the boundary lines are and not all that important. However, a lot of times people will wanna get a staked survey so they know the exact boundaries of the property they're purchasing. And finally, any potential government inspection. Sometimes there may be an occupancy permit that's required, planning and zoning inspection, a health department inspection, any of those should be done and initiated by the buyer during this time period. Real estate contracts basically spell out the time uh, in which the buyer has to have these inspections done and the procedures if there's a problem uh, with uh, notifying the seller. Hey, I've got this problem with this component of the home and giving the seller an opportunity to respond to that. By either fixing the problem or maybe negotiating uh, down the purchase price. If a major issue can't be resolved, this may give a buyer uh, the right to cancel the contract. There will generally be a paragraph in the agreement that talks about whether there is a home warranty or not. In most cases, there is not a formal home warranty. Now these can be purchased from a third-party vendor, but most real estate sales are going to be as is. There is generally a paragraph on prorated costs. And we're talking about annual costs like property taxes. We're talking about HOA fees or common area maintenance fees. And these are usually split between the buyer and the seller. And the way they calculate that is they take the overall amount, say it's $1,500 for your property taxes, and they calculate how many days of the year that the seller was in the property. Then they calculate the number of days in the year that the buyer will be in the property. You divide each of these days in the year by 365, and you get a proportional percentage, and that is the percentage that each party pays relative to the overall annual property tax or whatever the issue is. So there'll always be a paragraph in there on prorating these annual expenses. There'll be the legal paragraph in there about default and what are the remedies of the party. This usually will include a right to try to force the other party to close on the contract. And if that can't happen, then to get damages. Often included in these contracts is a provision that allows the prevailing party to be reimbursed their attorney fees. So when you breach the agreement, not only do you have the potential to pay damages, you have to pay your own lawyer, but you have to pay the other side's lawyer sometimes too. There'll be a paragraph in there about disclosures, and it'll talk about one major one is the seller's disclosure statement, which is required in many states. And this is a statement by the seller as to all of the major functional components of the home. Talk about the roof, the foundation, the plumbing, the electrical, the HVAC, and any problems that the seller had during his or her course of ownership and any repairs that were conducted. Other disclosures include environmental disclosures. You have to disclose if there's been a problem with radon, if the house has the potential to have had lead paint in it. Uh, If there was any methamphetamine uh, used in the house in many states, that must be disclosed if the house had formerly been a meth lab or something along those lines. And there's lots of different provisions in different states that talks about um, any type of toxic chemicals uh, that had been handled in the property must be disclosed to the buyer. Several states uh, require the disclosure of any known encroachments, and that will be any boundary issues that the seller knows about, whether that be with a neighboring property or it could be a setback uh, issue off the road with a a homeowner's association or even uh, potential zoning issues with a city or a county. In a lot of states these are required disclosures from the seller. There is a general requirement that you disclose any covenants and restrictions against the property and these are usually the stuff of homeowners associations and letting people know there is a HOA, uh, there is a fee associated with that, and these are the conditions regarding your ability to use the real estate. Finally, many states require a seller to disclose if there is any uh, threatened or pending litigation regarding the property, because most people don't want to buy a home and buy a lawsuit at the same time. So several states require the pending litigation or anticipated litigation uh, disclosure by sellers. And of course, these contracts then contain about two or three pages of legalese saying time is of the essence and those types of things. Uh, We won't get into that in this video, but these are things that if you're concerned about, you should definitely discuss with your realtor or with a lawyer. So those are a lot of the things that are in the contract. As I said, once the buyers and the sellers sign, you have a binding contract and the clock starts ticking towards closing. As a buyer, you've got to get all these inspections done. Uh, Then you have to notify the seller of any problems and potentially conduct a re-inspection. You've got to get your financing in order and get it nailed down with the bank. You may have pre-qualified, but you have to get that final financing document nailed down with your lender. You have to get the closing appointment set with either the title company, if that's allowed in your state, or an attorney, if that's required. And this 30 to 45 to 60 days is a whirlwind because you're also trying to pack to move. So there are a lot of things to do during this time period, not to mention the last of which is a final walkthrough. On the night before closing, as the buyer, you want to do a final walkthrough of the home to make sure, A, it's still there, nothing has happened to it, and B, all the repairs and things that were asked of during this executory period from when you signed the agreement to closing to make sure all of those things were done and taken care of. During the final walkthrough, flip on the light switches, run the air conditioner, run the heater, make sure all the major components still work before you close on the house. And then the next thing is you attend closing. As the buyer, uh, you will be paying the purchase price. Now, generally, this will be by wire transfer from your lender. However, if you're paying cash, it'll be by wire transfer or certified funds from your bank to pay off the full purchase price. In exchange, the seller will be tendering a warranty deed giving the buyer a title to the property and keys uh, and possession of the property after closing. A lot of times there are a lot of documents to sign. The buyer will be signing loan documents, which uh, will include the promissory note agreeing to pay the bank back and a security agreement or a deed of trust, which guarantees the house as collateral in case they do not pay back the note the bank would have the right to foreclose upon the home and take it back to offset the amounts that are owed the bank under the promissory note. In addition, everybody will get what's called a HUD-1 statement, and this itemizes where every single penny in the transaction went, so that the buyers and the sellers know how the money was spent. And if all goes well, you'll get the keys and you'll get to move into your new home. Congratulations, you've bought a home. Well, that's all for today's episode on how to buy a house from the point of contracting through closing. If you've liked today's episode, uh, hit that like button. If you want to learn more about the law, subscribe to the channel. If you got something to say, comment below. And as always, share me on social media. Thank you for watching. I'm Joshua Roberts, and this is Lawyer Up. Send lawyers, guns, and money. Dad, get me out of this.